This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. What makes us do what we do? Do we really make our own decisions? Can governments and corporations make us want to do what they want us to do, seemingly of our own volition, using methods that go beyond advertising and PR into the deeper reaches of human psychology? You don't need a science fiction mind control, Ray, the argument goes, if you adhere to the tenets of behavioural science, the notion that with the right psychological stimulus and gentle incentives and disincentives, you can get large numbers of people to behave as you would prefer. That was the thinking behind the Cameron government's behavioural insights team, aka the Nudge Unit, whose successes included sending gentle letters to British doctors who are over-prescribing, thereby cutting unnecessary prescriptions by 3.3%, apparently. The unit is now a private business, and in Mexico, it pulled off a 37% increase in tax declarations by, wait for it, texting people reminders. Behavioural science is now embedded in the government's COVID response, but does it all work? Are gentle reminders and simple carrots and sticks more potent than major messaging? Or as Bjork says, is there definitely, definitely, definitely no logic to human behaviour? Joining me is the tech writer and investigative journalist Andrew Olovsky, formerly executive editor at the tech site The Register and now heading the research network Think of X, and he is a sceptic. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I think a sceptic is, is a decent description. Yeah. Yes, that's an all-purpose description for you, isn't it? Now, I saw an organogram of behavioralism full of words like optimism, bias, intergroup, yeah. opposition, and delusion of control. And it looked like a load of primal scream lyrics. What exactly do you mean by behavioralism? I can't even say it. Behavioralism. <laughs> Well, I think it's a branch of psychology that's very popular now because it promises uh, people that you can manipulate behavior and, and with a kind of a loss of faith in politics and appealing to people but through great ideas and persuasion, it, it, it seeks to kind of manipulate in, in slightly shadowy ways. It's, it's come back in fashion with the rise of social networks and, and big data, which apparently promises to, to allow patterns which, which were hidden to, to, to emerge again. I actually became interested when I was a journalist around 18 years ago in, in Silicon Valley, just after the dot-com crash. And I was hanging out with the people who would say top at Google and would be building these new things called social networks. And I was just appalled and intrigued how they applied scientific ideas or even just metaphors to, to human affairs. And I thought, well, no good can come of this. So how has this become so central to government? And I mean, you are a sceptic, but to, to, to what mm. extent is it working in the sense that it's knitting itself into the way we're governed, if not necessarily delivering the results? Yeah, well, it's got a kind of an interesting history. If we can maybe just wind back to how it came yeah. from. That's quite illuminating in a sense. There's the history of the psychology itself, which derives from animal experiments. You'll recall Pavlov rang a bell mm. to make a dog salivate. So behaviorism on humans was kind of the next step in the 20s. But it only really came back in the 1970s with a, the kind of the utopian view that we could have organized communities around behaviorist principles. A chap called B.F. Skinner 
uh, was responsible for the revival. He'd written a book in 1948 that nobody had bought for about 20 years called Walden II, which described, in his mind, it was a utopia, but it was a very kind of creepy society in which people are being manipulated without realizing they're being manipulated. And and this was kind of the basis for a a couple of dozen, we call them hippie communes, but but intentional communities, I think is the the description. Preferred euphemism, yes. Yeah. Now, I I think it came back because people were kind of exhausted with Freud and Jung in in, in psychology. But but Freud and Jung had they looked at people's motives, whereas behaviorism doesn't care about motives. It kind of extracts the human reasoning, the human agency for doing something, which I think is a terrible mistake once it begins to be applied to, to politics. So the thinking is that we are, I mean, one ha- one hates to uh, take the word sheeple out of the uh, raging <laughs> binfire of the further reaches of social media, but the idea that we can be diverted and coaxed and not exactly programmed, but kind of given a framework of, of the world that leads us in a particular direction. I think I think this has always been tempting. I mean, psychology has had this fascinating history with with politics, um, with governments seeking to to influence. And you know, to be fair, a lot of people advancing this are not bad people. They want they want better outcomes. Um, so Freud's nephew Louis Bernays went to the US around the time of World War One and um, created the public relations industry. And and for for Bernays, it was a scientific appeal. He actually applied to have PR accredited as a scientific discipline in the 30s. But the appeal of nudge and the behavioral science is is that it's more scientific than before and it offers us insights and that's actually where the conservatives picked up on this i think to understand that we we sort of wind back a bit this became very popular i think through through pop science now there's a kind of a tradition of where the self-help book meets the marketing book there's a very lucrative niche of self-help books, which are actually help yourself stuff as well. So you become a better person. There's a kind of a personal epiphany and you sell more shower curtains. Malcolm Gladwell, I think, is, is in this vein of, of producing very kind of uh, attractive culture pop science books, which apparently purport to convey some kind of breakthrough, but are bought in large numbers by marketing people. And the marketing influence has, has fed through to government. So it's 2008 and David Willits addresses the Conservative Party conference with the statement that there's an extraordinarily exciting convergence of evolutionary biology, game theory and neuroscience. Uh, And the Conservatives launched a nudge unit in 2010, which is still with us in a sense. It's not formally part of government, but it has a a key influence on government. The idea of nudge is that you can influence people without them realising they're being manipulated. And I think this appealed to the Cameroons because it sort of it promised to achieve outcomes without looking bossy, and they hated looking bossy. So, w- w- where did that actually meet the road, as it were? What were the specific things that they attempted to pull off with this? Well, a lot of these breakthroughs turned out to be very small tests, uh, very narrow and specific tests, often focusing on how people were not very good at statistics or not very good at estimating large numbers or making guesses. So it's much more narrow field than what Freud and Jung were looking at the sort of deepest human passions. These, these were the kind of little tests that showed that that we were flawed. But the, the kind of cumulative effect of this was that we're actually hopeless at making any kind of decision. And I think that's been very corrosive on public debate and politics in general. Alongside this was the rise of neuroscience. Neuroscientists are convinced that there's no 
free will and it's worthless that that the brain is simply a sort of very poorly functioning computer i mean insofar as i can remember what nudges messages were they were all slightly kind of eat your greens they were all slightly kind of a cheery little tap on the on the shoulder a cheery little nudge in the elbow it was like the dancing paperclip from microsoft word popping up at you every five minutes and saying have you taken your vitamins today are you trying to write a letter don't forget to put your tax return in yeah, it just seems a very diminished world when, when politicians focus too much on a tiny decision rather than the big things of the day, appealing to people's uh, generosity and intellect and so on, uh, and, and acknowledging that people are very rich and complex, that enlightenment idea of the human doesn't exist in, in nudge or behaviorism. Um, I mean, one example, I can give a concrete example, which is uh, when government decides that people need to be a bit healthier it could stop schools selling playing fields. It could reward you for exercising. Or it could just do these clever little decision-making choices. And I think, I think you know, to appeal, it takes a big policy step to build more gyms and playing fields and encourage us uh, to do it. But that's a much more positive way than to sort of fiddle and trick us into, into you know, small choices about Mars bars. But the, the, the answer of the private sector would be, we know how to do this, we gamify everything. So the reason people like to run more is because they can post a map of where they've run onto social media using one of our apps. That surely is a beneficial aspect of, you know, an outgrowth maybe of Nudge. Yeah, gamification is related to Nudge. But again, a gamification is founded on this idea that you're, you're being tricked. And I think, you know, and a, a fundamental reward of like, look, here's some, you know, you can get pay a bit less tax this year because you've got fitter and healthier. That's the underlying philosophy of that is generally a positive one. Let's bring it up to date then. I mean, we've got now Dominic Cummings uh, and his kind of Ozymandias Adrian Veidt seeing rooms with giant TVs and graphs and uh, the entire world happening before his very eyes. And this is going to be the engine of how government uh, operates in a fast and agile way, supposedly. A, is it going to work? And B, why do these guys fall so hard for this stuff? Uh, yeah, it's a fascinating question because I think I think I mean Cummings is a fascinating character. I find you know a lot of his instincts are fairly sound and outside the media bubble. It's odd. That, I mean, his approach is very technocratic. I think it's not so much as I don't think he sees this as a policy shift, but as a way of getting the civil service to be more responsive. It's a, but it's a curiously technocratic approach in which data reveals something that you don't already know. And when you look at big government failures, they're, they're kind of, it's the judgment itself that's to blame or the lack of leadership that's to blame. Well, the policy is to blame. I don't think numbers will give you a truth that you, you, you didn't already have. Speaking of big government failures, we're in the middle of the COVID crisis, which has yeah. been described as a massive open air experiment in behavioural science. The government is trying to get us to do things we wouldn't ordinarily do, and it keeps changing what it wants us to do. It uh, is, is COVID a valid kind of test case for behavioralism, whether it works or not? Well, I mean, I think governments are justified. Here's a pandemic, and um, you want to influence behaviour. Where I kind of question is whether the behavioral scientists who all seem to disagree with each other on what we should do have anything unique to bring and, and i see a lot of finger pointing and, and not being the last person in the room when um, when the reckoning comes <laughs> yeah, a lot of them contradict each other and i think it, i mean i think it's a great example of the limits of what we call behavioral science which isn't a science uh, it's a collection of anecdotes and what the government actually wanted people to do 
Uh, I mean, the problem now, as much as the pandemic isn't going to go away for quite some time, we've got a crisis of people not using the NHS. So that kind of very fear-based, profound message that you must stay at home and not overload the NHS has seemed to be... I don't think the government knows how to get people out of it. Um, the government, the public were great in responding to that message, but they now won't go to the doctors. Um, that seems to be the problem. <laughs> uh, who would want to be in government with that? It's, it's tough and it needs leadership. And I don't think, um, I think, I think they're struggling to provide it. Are the three word slogans, the infamous, you know, stay alert, uh, protect the NHS things, are they consistent with behavioural science? Or is that just actually just, you know, whether you think it's good or bad, whether you think it's working or not working, is that just straightforward marketing? I don't think any behavioural science is con consistent with behavioural science. Um, I mean, I, I can't be strong enough on this. It's not a, To me, science is something you can build on. It doesn't have to agree with another science, but you can take it away and build on it. What this is is a collection of anecdotes given a rather pretentious name. So somebody comes along, does a study, and here's a new bias, or here's a new heuristic, or here's a new architecture. And it's simply putting um, putting a fancy words on a, on a phenomenon, which may well be true, it may not be true, it may not be replicable, but it doesn't actually tell you a lot about people's deep motivations, which have gradually been erased from the picture. Well, the, the kind of key things we can draw from COVID so far, which may not even be at the halfway point, are firstly, get a consistent message and don't deviate from it. So if you start with stay at home, don't finish up with don't kill your gran. Secondly, make sure it chimes with people's pre-existing orientation. So like, yes, protect the old, venerate the NHS, but you know, it has to sort of it has to feel morally rooted in what people are already thinking. I think so. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And finally, don't make it feel like orders from superiors. Don't make it, you know, don't have the, the Bernard Castle factor. Make it fair, obviously, clearly mm. and visibly fair. So, I mean, I don't know whether you know how much of that comes wrapped in the rubric of behavioral science, but to me it just seems to be very common sense. And I know falling back on common sense is the is often the site the, the, the sign of the very underinformed mind. But it does seem there seems to be the lessons that we can draw from what's happened with COVID. I think the behavioural scientists who are in the room don't seem to be able to agree with each other. I mean, I've read through the SAGE behavioural committee's notes, and a lot of it is just plain common sense that anyone could contribute. But I think there was certainly a, an emphasis on fear, and that emphasis on fear has frightened the wits out of people. You make a very good point about fairness as well. Um, I'm just really puzzled and intrigued how it will pan out in so many communities now don't have coronavirus and they're being penalized because the the, the measures are, are very they're not granular uh, they're not on the ward level um they're on a kind of constituency or even you know on a local authority level aren't they so um yeah. i think you probably have a backlash in the shires where where coronavirus is more or less doesn't exist um some may never have had it why can't i meet somebody else my children from another ward which hasn't had it and that's going to be it's going to be very trying at least on, on people's patients Dominic Cummings seems at the moment immovable within government and is setting the tone of government and is in fact attempting to reshape pretty much any nearby institution or architecture of government that he can lay his hands on. And he's a fan of this stuff. Do you think that we are going to, notwithstanding your objections to it, we're going to have to learn to live with this as being the way government gets done? Uh, no, I, I, I just don't think it, 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 it doesn't offer a plausible alibi for a politician who's made a mistake. And, and it doesn't, I mean, Cummings insight is, is, was, was quite profound at times and not rooted in behavioral science. So there's, I think there's two Dominics really battling it out. Is, is, is it the one who trusts the data? Is it the one who trusts his instinct and, instinct and 
experience. What, what do you mean by his insights were quite profound? What, what, what in, in what way? Just as with the with the structure of government and the state, or or the messaging approach? Well, one of his one of his I think one of the most important reasons Leave succeeded was that he buried the Tory MPs and hid them in a cupboard because he thought, he thought um, particularly the free market wing of the Conservative Party was repellent to voters. He's never liked them. He's kind of, there's a lot of mutual loathing there. They think he's um, he spends too much money and has these big projects which aren't you know terribly conservative. It's fascinating to have this character of, of full of contradictions uh, in, in the Conservative Party and government. It's ironic that the the kind of political setup we've got now is largely brought to us by a fear and distrust and rejection of experts and yet this approach that you can have all the data on a big screen in a kind of uh, mi5 james bond headquarters is the most experty thing imaginable it, it is it is literally the notion that the people are the sheeple and can be controlled and it, and it has it has an elitism baked into it it's the antithesis of what brought these guys to power in the first place yeah, I think it's a bit more subtle than that, Andrew, because the, 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 the mania for dashboards in government predates Cummings by, by a few years. I mean, and it's very technocratic. Ministers will say, I need to know how many you know people have been caught speeding today or how many blood tests there have been today, long before the uh, coronavirus came along. But big data has been around for around 10 years, and it's almost like the enemy of expertise. It's certainly, you could read articles around a decade ago saying you didn't need the scientific method anymore. You would simply interrogate this this mass of big data uh, and it would come out with the answers. But that, that cut across a lot of disciplines. So sociologists were being told you don't need to be a sociologist with a theory that you then explore and, and, and confirm. You can just simply ask questions. And it was the kind of Googleization of, um, of a lot of disciplines. Uh, big data is fundamentally what, what Cummings has a lot of faith in. But it doesn't kind of, it's as good as the question you ask and the data won't necessarily answer it. Andrew Oloski, thanks for joining us. Um, I, I, very illuminating, very fascinating. Terrific, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Remember, there is a new Bunker Daily on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday mornings. Every Wednesday morning, there is the uh, larger panel show where we have more people all arguing about whatever happened this week. So don't forget to subscribe and you won't miss one. Also, if you're interested, we're doing a live Zoom on Thursday, the 24th of September for all of our Patreon backers. And if you search Patreon Bunker Podcast, you will discover how to get the podcast early how to get into the Zoom, and many other beautiful benefits. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>